Hey there, we're listening to Talking Feds on YouTube. Oh, we were. Let's see what Midas Touch is up to. Thanks for 242k. Stop it, Sydney Trump, wacko, co-defendant just screwed everyone. Me <laughs> Fighting a losing battle against dark circles? That's no surprise, because if you're over 40, mainstream concealers aren't on your side, and I'll expose the reason why in the next 20 seconds. Ever wondered why your dark hey, circles no shelter, even with all the right concealers? Oh, if you're a woman over 40, there's a hidden cause that mainstream products just... I'm Ben Micellis from Legal AF, joined by our incredible co-host, none other than your favorite, Karen Friedman Agnifilo. want to talk about this speedy trial demand made by the release, the Kraken person herself, Sidney Powell, one of the co-defendants in Fulton County District Attorney Bonnie Willis, sprawling RICO criminal case, Sidney Powell engaging in some of the most egregious and frankly weird uh, conduct and criminal conduct that is alleged in the indictment and that we all saw with our own eyes. And Sidney Powell just filed this demand under uh, Georgia law, under the Georgia Speedy Trial Act. And when a demand for speedy trial is made like Sidney Powell just did under Georgia law, that means that a case must go to trial in the term when the demand for speedy trial is made or in the next term. Now, the various counties in Georgia have different terms of when they start, but Fulton County, Georgia, for purposes of uh, this video, we'll keep our universe a little bit confined here and zoom in. They have a July term that they are currently in that goes from July to the end of August. The next term is a September term that ends in October. So under Georgia law, when a demand like this is made, Fulton County District Attorney Phony Willis would have to bring the Sidney Powell case to trial in either uh, the July term or in the September term. Uh, Fulton County District Attorney Phony Willis has already responded to another speedy trial request. And I'm laughing right now when I tell you how this has backfired for Ken Chesborough so badly. But one of Trump's co-defendants, Ken Chesborough, was first to file one of these demands for a speedy trial. And Fulton County District Attorney Phony Willis then responded, okay, I'm ready. Let's set the case for all defendants for October 23rd of 2023. And Judge McAfee said, look, at least with uh, uh, Chesborough, we'll set his trial for October. Um, that caused a lot of the other co-defendants to file their own brief saying, no, 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 we're not ready to go in October of 2023. The other date Fawny Willis gave in a prior scheduling order was March of 2024, but Fawny Willis used the Chesborough speedy trial demand and said, let's okay, let's do all 19 October 23rd of 2023. Why I was laughing before is, I get your take on this, Karen, because I think one of Chesborough's moves right here is he wanted to separate himself from the crazies. 
he did not want to be linked with them. And so one, I think he was trying to call the bluff of Fulton County District Attorney, like, are you ready to try this case? And she's like, yeah, I'm, I'm ready. But two, I don't think he wanted to be in a courtroom with people like Sidney Powell and others. And the ultimate irony here is, what if it's just him and Sidney Powell and then one or two of the other like massively team crazy criminal defendants? So those cases get joined and the jury now hears Chesbro linked with Powell and all of the crazy stuff. He didn't want that taint, I think, to fall on him if he was tried with everybody else, potentially. And now Sidney Powell's case may be joined with his on this October 23rd day. What, what do you make of it as a former top prosecutor in New York? Yeah, look, it, this is really complicated and confusing because you've got 19 defendants here. And so going back to uh, another Another issue that many of the defendants, I think now five, have asked for removal to federal court. If this was civil, all the defendants and all the charges would be removed to civil court. There's an open question about whether if one defendant is removed to federal court, all defendants are removed to federal court. So um, we know that on Monday, Mark Meadows has a hearing, a removal hearing. Let's say for argument's sake, the judge says, you know what, I, I'm going re to remove this case to federal court. And there's five defendants who've asked, I'm going to bring the whole case up for just judicial economy and I, I just think that that's that's how it goes if that happens that will then then the federal rules of evidence apply and so I don't think the speedy trial the the Georgia speedy trial rules will control so it's it's unclear to me you know there's so many moving parts here about whether you know, right now, all the 19 defendants are together. Another thing that could happen is Judge McAfee could say, um, could say, I'm not severing any of these defendants. One guy asked for, you know, Ken Cheesborough, and now Sidney Powell asked for a speedy trial. I'm going to bring everybody along. Well, Donald Trump filed a motion yesterday saying, I don't want a speedy trial. Slow down. So there's a lot of open questions about what's going to happen and whether these, the case will go in October or not. But if it does go uh, in the speedy trial, I, I learned something very interesting this morning, which is the law in Georgia is that it's one defendant. If a defendant asks for a speedy trial, not only does Fonnie Willis have to start uh, have to start um, before the end of the term, as you said, either the term you're in or the next one. You have to actually have a jury seated and you have to open during that time, which was so perplexing to me because jury selection, as you know, can take a very long time, especially in a case like this. What if you, you know, how, it's going to be hard to find people who can sit for as long as this trial will be, who haven't heard about the case, who don't have strong opinions about the case, et cetera. You know, you need a fair and impartial jury. And so you could have a situation where a jury is not sat um, by the end of the term of no fault to Fonnie Willis, right? We know that she has a RICO jury in a in, a, in a, another a rapper, I think it was um, YSL is, is the defendant um, in, in, in Georgia going on right now. And they've been in jury selection for eight months. Now, the reason that one can go on so long is that defendant didn't demand a speedy trial. So there's no requirement to finish jury selection in a term. This defendant, Ken Cheeseborough, and now uh, and now Sidney Powell have asked for speedy a speedy trial um, under Georgia law, and so if it stays in state court, 
not only does Fannie Willis have to start by October 23rd, she has to finish jury selection by the end of October. So that could mean uh, the judge will, will work 18-hour days, seven days a week, nights and weekends, and do everything in their power to seat a jury so she can open before the end of the term, or the case gets dismissed on the merits as an acquittal. I mean, this is, you know, we have speedy trial laws in New York. You have speedy trial laws in California. There's speedy trial laws federally. This is one of the most, uh, one of the most unforgiving, dramatic speedy trial uh, requirements I've ever seen. But obviously, Fannie Willis knew about it and was prepared for it, which is why we were all frustrated and scratching our head when in January, the special purpose grand jury stopped doing its work. And in March, she said, you know, decisions and indictments are imminent. Imminent, we, we were all sort of, you know, saying and, and, and complaining that imminent to her is different than imminent to us because she didn't come out with her indictment for, you know, until August, which seemed like a long time. But now it makes all the sense in the world. Why? Because she knew some of these defendants very well might ask for their speedy trial, which they did. And she's ready. You know, she asked for a shorter time than they did. You know, he, he asked, um, Cheeseboro asked for a November date, but that would have been outside the term of court. So, so she said, Nope, I'm doing it sooner. I'm ready. And I'm doing it to give me enough time to seat a jury, get them sworn and open. So it's fascinating to me to, to watch this and watch this happen. I think Cheeseboro, you know, did it. I mean, to, to demand your speedy trial in two months, you're, you're sort of challenging the prosecutor and saying, you're not ready. Um, I don't believe you're ready. It's a gamble and it's a declaration of war. And she met, you know, she's a pro. She's smart. She's good. She's ready. And she's going to go. So we'll see who else joins, if anybody, or if it's just the two of them. Um, as you said, if I were him, the last person I would want sitting at the table is Sidney Powell uh, next to me. But, you know, they will be tried together because a judge isn't going to have 19 trials, they're going to try and group them and have as few as possible. Uh, so that it's going to be very interesting to see how this goes. I mean, look, they can always remove, they could always um, decide not to, they could, they could withdraw their speedy trial request if they want. Um, so who knows, who knows what's going to actually happen. But right now, it, stay tuned and get your popcorn out because it's going to be televised in Georgia State Court and better be ready to watch, watch the trial. And look, if there's a conviction, that will be devastating to all the other defendants, it'll encourage them to, you know, plead guilty or cooperate. Um, but, you know, so it'll be it'll be very interesting. Yeah, I did a video on how Chesbro's move and how Sidney Powell's move could end up screwing over all of the other co-defendants, including uh, including Donald Trump. You get that conviction of both of them, Chesbro and Powell, and all of a sudden you're now going to have everybody basically turn against Donald Trump immediately. Everyone's going to try to uh, take a deal also. That's going to be televised. You know, Chesbro has now made that trial. It's the first time we're all going to get to see this evidence in court every single day. And the evidence for Chesbro, because it's a criminal RICO case, is going to deal with the criminal enterprise. So she's going to put on the evidence of what Donald Trump did. She's going to put on the evidence of what Mark Meadows did. She's going to put on the evidence of what Giuliani did and where Chesbro fit into all of this. And you're going to have at that trial 
I think you'll have all of the compelling witnesses. You may even have the uh, Republican governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, testify. You'll definitely have Brad Raffensperger uh, testify. You'll have their former lieutenant governor of Georgia, Republican lieutenant governor testify. You're going to have all of these people. You'll probably have Ruby Freeman and, and Shea Moss uh, testify as well about the threats that they have. I think you're going to have a very compelling trial that is put on here. And I don't know, I, th I think Chesbro kind of miscalculated in, in the decision. And ultimately, Karen, to your point, a conviction here is going to be devastating to all of the other co-defendants. And now, Sidney Powell seems like one of the most guilty of every of everyone. I mean, you know, her remember, she's made statements in other courts that her speech was so outrageous that it should not have been relied upon in a defamation case that she was sued. Her defense is that no re this is what, what in a judicial record in a civil defamation case against her, she says no reasonable person should have believed that what I was saying was a statement of fact. Chesborough is going to be standing right next to that because Chesborough was out there pushing forward those types of statements as just that as fact so we'll keep everybody posted on that of course stay tuned but i think the final point fulton county district attorney fawny willis was ready she was ready for that moment and if someone was trying to call her out as being unprepared she was like you know what i'll try all 19 on october 23rd 2023 any final words karen just that Fonnie Willis is a real pro. Do not underestimate her. She is, I, I have a new respect for her. Uh, she knows what she's doing and she is handling this like, like a real pro. And they're underestimating her, of course, because A, she's a woman, B, she's a person of color, you know, and she's a state court prosecutor. They're feds. There's this whole, you know, there's always been, a, and I say this as a state court prosecutor, there's always a little bit of a, you know, kind of competition or you know the feds look down on us lowly state prosecutors and so but do not under, underestimate her I, I i'll go up against a fake uh, a state prosecutor over a, a fed any day um you know the, these are these are scrappy fighters who know what they're doing and she's a real pro that is true and no one else can really speak to that you being the number two in the manhattan district attorney's office serving as the acting manhattan district attorney for significant periods of time as well um, your experience is so valued here at the midas touch network and we're all appreciative of you and everything you do karen thank you for watching make sure you check out midastouch.com the new home for all things midas touch the perfect compliment to our YouTube page. Check us out, MidasTouch.com, and wherever you get audio podcasts, subscribe to the Legal AF podcast and the Midas Touch podcast also. See you next time, MidasTouch.com, hit subscribe. Hey, Midas Mighty, love this report? Continue the conversation by following us on Instagram, at MidasTouch, to keep up with the most important news of the day. What are you waiting for? Follow us now. Sunday Arrested Development.
Donald Trump is arrested for the fourth time and becomes the first president to have his mugshot taken. His 18 co-defendants, including his former chief of staff, also surrendered after being charged for their efforts to overturn the 2020 Georgia election results. What has taken place here is a travesty of justice. And at the party's first debate, Trump's rivals promised to support him, even if he's a convicted felon. Would you still support him as your party's choice? As Trump navigates his legal challenges, will any of his political challengers find a path to beat him? Plus, stealing the spotlight, he grabbed all the attention in the first Republican primary debate. If you have a broken car, you don't turn over the keys to the people who broke it again. You hand it over to a new generation to actually fix the problem. Now is not the time for on-the-job training. I've had enough already tonight of a guy who sounds like ChatGPT standing up here. Vivek Ramaswamy, the millennial entrepreneur who has never held political office, is facing intense scrutiny over his views. You have no foreign policy experience and it shows. And you know what? I'll talk to the political outsider who clashed the most with his GOP rival. And 2024 vision. Senator Bernie Sanders issues a warning to Democrats about how to win the future. There has got to be an ideological change of this. I'll ask President Biden's chief rival from 2020 what he wants to see the Democrats focus on for a second Biden term. Joining me for insight and analysis are former Democratic Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy of Florida, former Republican Governor of North Carolina, Pat McCrory, Danielle Pletka of the American Enterprise Institute, and Marcos Melitzis, the founder of Daily Coast. Welcome to Sunday. It's Meet the Press. From NBC News in Washington, the longest-running show in television history, this is Meet the Press with Chuck Todd. Good Sunday morning. Donald Trump's inevitability, the idea that he cannot be beaten in this Republican primary, has been a source of strength for him. At Wednesday night's debate, we saw what a campaign, though, could look like on Earth, too, without Trump on stage. But we still live on this version of Earth, and until one of Trump's opponents is recognized as a viable challenge by Republican primary voters, it is a debate that may have to be put on hold until 2027. That said, a failure of imagination turned the idea that Trump could never win in 2016 into faulty conventional wisdom. And it's that same failure of imagination now to believe that he can't lose the Republican primary that we should be cautious of. The main threat to Trump has always been his legal troubles. And his campaign may be cashing in on the mugshot released after his booking on Thursday night right now. But it is a visual representation of the four indictments and 91 felony counts against him and the political trouble they may represent, thanks to a whole bunch of unknown unknowns with the legal calendar. Currently, all 18 of Trump's co-defendants have now turned themselves in in the Georgia racketeering case. Two have already requested a speedy trial, leading to questions about whether they might cooperate. Kenneth Cheeseborough, he's the lawyer who wrote the campaign memo that essentially was used and laid out the plot to use false slates of electors to subvert the 2020 election. And Sidney Powell wants a speedy trial. She's the lawyer who allegedly accessed and removed voter data in a county in Georgia, as well as filing numerous unsuccessful lawsuits on Trump's behalf alleging fraud. John Eastman, another lawyer who helped develop the plan to use slates of false electors to keep Trump in office, is also likely to request a speedy trial as well. So consider a televised trial, Georgia law, of these defendants starting as early as this October and potentially before any trial that features Donald Trump starts. 
And Fannie Willis could lay out the case against Trump for the nation ahead of the start of the primary calendar. That's an unknown unknown that I'm pointing out here. Some of Trump's Republican opponents tiptoeing towards pointing out that a campaign year full of courtroom motions and trials might not be the greatest general election politics for the GOP. We have to face the fact that Trump is the most disliked politician in America. We can't win a general election that way. And yet, at least six of the eight Republicans on stage in Milwaukee, including Haley, raised their hands to confirm that they would support Trump in 2024, even if he is convicted by a jury of his peers. And they made the odd decision to pile on political newcomer Vivek Ramaswamy, who may be surging, but is still barely cracking double digits. Now is not the time for on-the-job training. We don't need to bring in a rookie. We don't need to bring in people without experience. I've had enough already tonight of a guy who sounds like ChatGPT standing up here. Under your watch, you will make America less that you have no foreign policy experience, and it shows. And you know what? The arrows may have come because Rama Swamily took every opportunity on stage to defend and praise the man who wasn't there, Donald Trump. President Trump, I believe, was the best president of the 21st century. It's a fact. And joining me now is the Republican presidential candidate that was at the center of the debate, Vivek Ramaswamy. Mr. Ramaswamy, welcome back to Meet the Press. It's good to talk to you, John. Uh, let me start with the tragedy uh, that took place in Jacksonville. Um, this is what uh, Sheriff Waters, how he described uh, the incident last night. The shooting was racially motivated, and he hated black people. He wanted to kill. But he targeted a certain group of people, and that's black people. That's what he. That's what he said he wanted to kill, and um, that's very clear. And uh, I don't know that the targets were specific, but I know that any member of that of that race at that time was in danger. Both the FBI and DHS in the last two years have said that racially motivated violent extremism is on the rise. This is clearly part of that. What would a President Ramaswamy want the Justice Department to do about this racially motivated violence that we're seeing on the rise? I think that every criminal deserves to be punished to the fullest extent of the law, especially when they're carrying out premeditated crimes like this one. This is a heinous crime. My heart goes out to the families who were affected by this. It is tragic, and this should not be happening in the United States of America. I think the fact of the matter is, Chuck, it is really just a symptom of a deeper new form of national division that we have created. And I think one of my top jobs as the next U.S. president is really to lead with a national tone of character that reminds us of how we are all united across our diverse attributes. I think part of the problem is we have obsessed so much Mm. over racial and other genetic differences that we have forgotten all of the ways we're really the same as a country. And I do think we need a leader and in the White House developing that national character for this country again. We also do have a mental health epidemic across this country, Chuck, that really is reflective of a hunger for purpose yeah. and meaning. What? We need to fill that void, address the mental health epidemic, but this is a tragedy and deserves to be called out as heinous. That's exactly what it was. Why do you think there are more race-based uh, violent crimes on the right than on the left. Why is this a little more pervasive, a lot more pervasive on the right? 
Well, the fact of the matter is, I think that there's a lot more violence that's also pervasive in parts of the country that supposedly are left-wing voter bases. So I don't think this is a left versus right issue, and I don't think we should try to politicize this through partisan goggles either, Chuck, especially in the wake of a tragedy like this one. The fact is there are you ignore the manifesto dying on the south side of Chicago. Do you ignore the elements that, that? allowed this manifesto to, to spread online and that what we're, you know... It does feel as if social media well, the f- connects some of these hate, hateful ideologies. Well, the fact of the matter is I do think we have two standards that we're even applying if we're having a conversation about manifestos. We still have not yet even seen the manifesto of that transgender shooter in Nashville of a Christian school. And yet here we're focusing on the motive. So if we want to look at this through a politicized lens, let's look at what the political media and the political establishment is doing differentially in how they analyze different crimes and then create a new narrative around it. The fact is, what I said in the Nashville shooter case, I will say here. Any killing, any mass killing is heinous. We need to get to the root cause of the mental health epidemic, address that. We need leadership that sets the right tone in this country. But if we are going to talk about manifestos and politicization, Chuck, I think it is incomplete not to look at the absence of releasing that Nashville shooter manifesto even as of today. That's why I personally traveled to Nashville to call for it. And that, I think, is the best evidence of real politicization in terms of what the public sees and what the public doesn't. I want to apply one standard for everybody. I don't want to look at this through partisan goggles. I want to look at this through one standard of the rule of law for everybody. You believe racism is a mental health issue? Well, I do believe that racism in many cases is manufactured in a way that creates more racism in this country. I cannot think of a greater way, Chuck, of driving racism in this country than to take something else away from someone based on the color of their skin. And so is there existing racism in the United States? Of course there is. But those last burning embers of racism, the last thing I want to do is throw kerosene on it. And yet that's exactly what I believe the modern culture is doing by creating race-based quota systems that deny people access to goods or services based on the color of their skin. The right answer to stop discrimination on the basis of race, as John Roberts said it, is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. And I am genuinely worried that we're seeing a new wave of anti-black and anti-Hispanic racism as a consequence of the so-called anti-racist movements. Your argument comes across as blaming those that are trying to create equality for the rise in racism. Well, the fact is, Chuck, I don't want to be playing a blame game. I want to be going towards a solution. And I am genuinely worried that those who earnestly espouse the view, I'm going to quote Ibram Kendi from his book directly, I'm not putting words in anybody's mouth, says the right answer to past discrimination is present discrimination. The right answer to present discrimination is future discrimination. I believe the people who hold that view are earnest about it, but I think they're wrong. And I think that that's actually creating more discrimination and more division in our country. And I think the right answer is actually to restore colorblind equality, colorblind meritocracy, embrace what unites us across our diversity instead of celebrating our skin-deep diverse attributes. That's how I think we reunite this country, Chuck. And it's not blaming anybody else for having a different point of view. But I do think that as a leader, it's my job to articulate exactly how we will unite this country. And that's exactly how I'm going to do it. Let me move to the debate. And uh, a lot of people are asking this question. If you believe Donald Trump is the greatest president of the 21st century, he's running. Why are you running against him? Why do you think his second term won't be as good as his first? 
Well, look, I did say he's the best president of the 21st century. From George Bush to Barack Obama to Joe Biden to Donald Trump, I think it's not even close. Who was the best of those presidents? In my book, I judge by results. That being said, I believe I can take the America First agenda even further than Donald Trump did. I think I will be more effective in uniting this country in the process. Look at the way we're running this campaign. I'm not leaving any state behind, any city behind, no American left behind, from the south side of Chicago to Kensington, to places where traditional Republicans don't go. I think I am best positioned to deliver a landslide election, a multi-ethnic, working-class majority. And I do think that a landslide is what we need in this country, not another 50.1 election. And I'm the only candidate in this race who can actually deliver that. Look, a political neophyte outsider became president and couldn't get a lot of the things done that he wanted to get done in Donald Trump. Why do you think somebody with uh, less experience than Donald Trump had is somehow going to make the federal government uh, uh, function in a way that you're outlining? So I think there's three things I would say. The first is we have that experience to learn from. I want to build on the foundation that Trump laid. Frankly, I will invite him as an advisor and a mentor. I don't want to relearn the same lessons. I want to pick up where he left off in taking on the administrative state. The second thing, Chuck, is I do think it needs to be an outsider to take on that administrative state. But I also think it needs to be an outsider who has a deep first personal understanding of the laws and constitution of this country. I think Trump was in many cases duped by his managerial advisors, for example, who said that you can't fire employees in the federal government due to civil service protections. Read the law. Turns out those civil service protections only apply to individual firings, not to mass layoffs. Mass layoffs are absolutely what I will bring to the D.C. bureaucracy. And I think the fact that I am from a different generation, Chuck, will be an asset. I'm able to reach young Americans. I'm able to reach people who haven't traditionally been brought into the mold of Republican politics. I don't even talk about Republicans and Democrats. And so I think I'll be able to build a greater moral mandate across generations that helps unite Americans around the America First agenda rather than making it a strictly partisan affair. Uh, Let me bring up a couple questions you didn't get a chance to answer at the debate. Most of the candidates on stage Wednesday night said Mike Pence did the right thing on January 6th. Do you agree? I would have done it very differently. I think that there was a historic opportunity that he missed to reunite this country in that window. What I would have said is this is a moment for a true national consensus where there's two elements of what's required for a functioning democracy in America. One is secure elections, and the second is a peaceful transfer of power. When those things come into conflict, that's an opportunity for heroism. Here's what I would have said. We need single-day voting on Election Day. We need paper ballots, and we need government-issued ID matching the voter file. And if we achieve that, then we have achieved victory. And we should not have any further complaint about election integrity. So what would, so what I would, would you have done through the Senate? So what would you have done as, with Mike Pence? You would have so not capacity, certified the election? So in... In my capacity as president of the Senate, I would have led through that level of reform. Then on that condition, certified the election results, served it up to the president, President Trump, then to sign that into law. And on January 7th, declared the re-election campaign pursuant to a free and fair election. I think that was a missed opportunity. But that's the kind of spirit we're going to need to unite this country rather than sweeping those concerns under the rug. Eleven months ago, uh, excuse me, in what? No, excuse me. uh, In your book, which wasn't written that long ago. Um, You wrote the fact that all of our governmental institutions so unanimously found no evidence of significant fraud is telling. Furthermore, 
I've talked to many Republicans at all levels of government, and not one has ever presented convincing evidence that the 2020 election was stolen from President Trump. Very few have seriously tried. I don't believe that most Republican politicians actually think the election was stolen. So you went from there, so let me address and this. 11 months later, your views have changed on January 6th. Again, this book was written September yeah, of 2022. Chuck, I'm happy to address that if, you, if you're interested. Yeah. Yeah, so and read exactly that chapter in the book. I drew a sharp distinction between what I did see as the interference in the election that mattered, which was interference by big tech. I'm data-driven. There's hard data showing that many voters, many independent voters, would have changed their result enough to influence the outcome of the election yeah. if they had been exposed to what we now know to be the truth about the Hunter Biden laptop story. By contrast, I've also been clear. I have not yet seen evidence that there was ballot fraud of a scale that would have changed that result. I'm just responding to data on both fronts. But the fact of the matter is, if we're looking at reuniting this country, there are serious concerns on both sides, but especially on the right, about the concern of elections and election interference and ballot fraud, but also big tech interference. And there's a very clear result and way we can address that. I've offered a clear consensus that everybody can get behind. It is practical. And if people really think that debating this issue is a threat to our democracy, that should be an easy consensus to be able to rally around. And that's how I'll lead as president. First of all, you never talked about the tech stuff in your book. This is a new thing. It is Actually, not false, Chuck. It, it, it is, you have not Chuck, talked about this Hunter Biden the nation of victims aspect aspect of it. We were looking, Chuck. For I, I think you have not. I think you have not read nation. I think you have not read Nation of Victims. Literally read the book. There was about twenty pages of content devoted yeah, to this, and I you also didn't bring it up write about game. election so fraud that it, way. It's fine, but you don't but have an obligation to read my book. But, because but if you, you do, because you correctly. We, well, we have been, and let me quote it again. We use you're referring to Republicans. We use stolen election theories as a backdoor to embracing our own victim identity uh, path, pursuing an easy path to power. Throughout this entire book, you mock the entire January 6th aspect. You, you absolutely criticize Donald Trump for being a sore loser. You write about it in a way of making your point that you've be, we've become a nation of victims. And right now on TV, you're doing the exact opposite. I'm not. Chuck, I actually want to be very clear. I preached to conservative audiences last. I was in Iowa over the last two days. And what do I tell them? We're not going to be victims. We're going to be victorious. Whether I'm talking to the left or the right, I say the same thing. I've also been very clear, Chuck, and I want to be clear today, that I would have made very different judgments than Donald Trump did that day and on many of the matters in his path out of office. But there's a difference between a bad judgment and a crime. And what I've been clear about is when we criminalize those bad judgments, that's an abuse of the justice system. It undermines trust not only in our elections, but in our justice system. We have to be able to draw those distinctions. And I do think, Chuck, it's going to take that kind of leader who can actually yeah. preach truth to both tribes in this country to reunite this country. So did Donald Trump make all the right judgments? No, I said so then. I say so now. Was that illegal and should we criminalize it? Absolutely not. But I want to lead this nation forward. That is my goal, not to look in the rearview mirror. And in order to do that, I think on the election integrity issue, we have an opportunity to put this de debate behind us by single day voting on election day as a national holiday with paper ballots and government issued ID. This should not be controversial. And if that helps reunite this country, yeah. as I believe it will, that's exactly how I must lead as president. And that's my commitment. All right. Again, from your book, no one likes a sore loser. That's one of the worst victim hurt complexes of all. Are you referring to Donald Trump? I referred in that chapter both to Stacey Abrams and to Donald Trump. And I think that the answer is we need leaders 
who ultimately stand for victory over victimhood. We did have a victimhood culture that started on the left in this country, the oppression hierarchy. My worry, Chuck, is that that can spread to the right. And the way that this so-called culture war will end is not with a bang, but with a whimper where each side imitates the methods of the other. That related even to some of my our earlier conversation on seeing each other based on the color of our skin. I think that is deeply divisive. What we need in this country is to revive the shared ideals that unite all of us as Americans. The pursuit of excellence, meritocracy, free speech, the rule of law. I genuinely believe, Chuck, that most Americans, yeah. regardless I, of black or yeah. white, red or blue, share these ideals in common. And that's what I'm reviving. I, I understand that. But again, let me let me go back to quoting you. The Republican Party seems to be moving towards the position that any races it wins are legitimate and any it loses were stolen. It's just the preferred preferred conservative brand of victimhood, a knee-jerk kind of sore losing more common to playground than great republics. You seem to, at the time you wrote your book, believe this was potentially damaging to the rule of law. This was not a way to uh, have a democracy uh, thrive. And you're now speaking in a way that gives essentially a permission slip to election deniers to believe there's some truth to something that you yourself have yet to find evidence of. Chuck, I stand by everything I said. That was a book where 11 of the 12 chapters were dedicated to a lot of left-wing victimhood in this country, but it would have been incomplete for me to, not to call out my own tribe. And my point is, I don't want to see this in terms of red versus blue. We've created an incentive structure in this country, whoever you are, whatever your skin color, increasingly whatever your political affiliation, to see yourself as a victim. I refuse to see myself as a victim. Hardship is not the same thing as victimhood. We are going through hardship as a country right now, including many conservatives. Hardship is sometimes not a choice. Victimhood is a choice. And so whoever the American is that I'm talking to, I say we do not choose victimhood. We choose victory. That is who we are. And I think we can be stronger on the other side of it. So, Chuck, this isn't some game of gotcha. I stand by everything I've written over the last three years in the books that I have, except for a few areas on facts where, as the new facts have come up, I've changed my mind. But in the core theses, I'm in the exact place I am is when I wrote those books. But the point of the matter is, I'm not in this race to lead a political party. I am in this race to lead a nation. I'm using the Republican Party as a vehicle to advance an America first agenda that I think many All Americans, right. most I, Americans one thing can I want to clear behind. up. That's what we're going to need. One thing I want to clear up. I know you've only voted in two presidential elections. Um, where did you vote in 2020 and how did you vote? I voted in Ohio and during the coronavirus pandemic, I voted by mail. That's, voted, that's exactly how I voted. And you know what? And the fact of the matter is. The fact of the matter is, I think we should have one standard for everybody. But for me, for much of my 20s, I was disaffected from politics. Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is, I understand why young people are disaffected. I was uninspired by John Kerry and George Bush. I voted Libertarian that year. Or by John McCain and Barack Obama. Or Mitt Romney mm -hmm. or Barack Obama. So I don't make any bones about that. I actually talk about it in my speeches. And you're also, also uninspired by Donald Trump in 2016. Right? I was skeptical of Donald. I was skeptical of Donald Trump in 2016. That is accurate because I had grown up in a generation where I felt like we had been lied to from weapons of mass destruction in Iraq to the 2008 financial bailouts. Those are Republican examples to Democrat examples of the Russia collusion hoax. So I was deeply skeptical, but I judged based on results and I voted for him with confidence in 2020. Vivek Ramaswamy, like I said, you became the center of the debate. We will be following your campaign as it goes on. Be safe on the trail, and thanks for coming on and sharing your views.
Thank you, Chuck. I appreciate it. When we come back, what is the Biden second term agenda? Senator Bernie Sanders, President Biden's chief rival in 2020, joins me next with his thoughts on what issues he wants Democrats to be running. Welcome back. Back in April, Senator Bernie Sanders, who, of course, was Biden's chief rival in the 2020 Democratic primaries, ruled out a third presidential bid and endorsed Biden for re-election. But on Saturday, Sanders was back in New Hampshire, one of those early presidential states where he won both the 2016 and 2020 primaries to share what he called his concrete agenda for the future of the Democratic Party at the New Hampshire Institute of Politics. Of course, when you go to New Hampshire, it sparks some speculation about his own political future. It is no secret that I want Joe Biden to be re-elected president. If that is going to happen, if we are going to defeat creeping authoritarianism and right-wing extremism, there has got to be an ideological change of course. The independent senator from Vermont, Bernie Sanders, joins me now. Senator Sanders, welcome back to Meet the Press. Thank you for having me. So the fact that you felt the need to do this, should we read into the fact that you don't believe there's a second term agenda yet that uh, Americans can wrap their head around for what a second Biden term would look like? No. I think what you can read into that is that Biden has every right to be proud of a long series of accomplishments. You know, two and a half, three years ago, this country was in the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression. Because of COVID, today unemployment is all of 3%. We're gaining new jobs, rebuilding manufacturing. We've invested in the uh, infrastructure. Uh, We're making progress, and Biden has a right to be proud of that. The point of my remarks is that you cannot simply, as President of the United States, rest on your laurels. What you have got to understand is that today, for structural reasons that have gone on for decades, Tens and tens of millions of people are struggling to put food on the table. They can't afford health care. They can't afford prescription drugs. They can't afford housing. They can't afford child care. And meanwhile, in the midst of all of that, you have incredible corporate greed, and the billionaire class has never done better. So my message yesterday for the Democrats, not just for the president, is if you want to do well in this election, talk to the needs of the American people, have the guts to take on the big money and trust of so much power. Sounds like you don't think the phrase finish the job is something to rally around, that there needs to be more than that. Well, it's yes, you need to recognize that not only have we accomplished a great deal in Biden's first three years, and he deserves credit for that. But there are so many long-term problems that this country is facing. Does anybody in America think that our health care system is working? And yet the insurance companies make tens of billions of dollars. Drug companies make tens of billions of dollars. We don't have enough doctors, nurses, mental health providers, pharmacists, dentists. So we need fundamental reform in health care. And by the way... The existential issue of our time is whether or not we address climate change. And we have made some steps forward, but there is no question in my mind if we're going to provide, allow our kids and grandchildren to live in a healthy planet, we've got a lot, lot more to do. Do you think there would be a robust discussion on this on the left if there were a competitive primary? Do you think there should be? Well, what I have, I think in this particular time, this particular moment in American history, when we're taking on uh, somebody, the former president, 
who in fact does not believe in democracy. He is an authoritarian uh, and a very, very dangerous person. I think at this moment there has got to be a unification of progressive people in general all over this country, people who are prepared to make sure that women control their own body, that we deal with climate change, that we represent the needs of the working class in this country and take on the billionaire class. Uh, one way that you make it clear that age isn't a factor with you is you're pretty energetic. We see you travel the country. You show up on, you do interviews. Um, what do you, It is clearly an issue for many voters when it comes to President Biden. He's a year younger than you. Do you have advice to him on how he should uh, assuage those uh, concerns in the public about his age? Look, when people look at a candidate, whether it's Joe Biden or Trump or Bernie Sanders, anybody else, you know, they have to evaluate a whole lot of factors. Uh, I you know, met with the president, I don't know, five or six weeks ago. We had a great discussion. He seemed fine to me. But I think at the end of the day, what we have got to ask ourselves is what do people stand for? Do you believe the women have a right to control their own bodies? Well, the president has been strong on that. Do you think that climate change is real? Or do you agree with the Republicans that it's a non-issue? Do you think we should raise the minimum wage? Do you think we should reform and take on the pharmaceutical industry? So age is an issue, Chuck, but there are a lot of broader issues than just that. Um, let me ask you about Cornell West. He was a co-chair of your campaign in 2020. He's flirting with a Green Party bid for president. Uh, the numbers tell the story between 2016 and 2020. Um, you can directly correlate the two third-party major candidates, third-party candidates, their collective total. Um, that was the difference between Biden winning states and Clinton losing those key states. Uh, are you trying to discourage Cornell West from running? Well, I've known Cornell for many, many years. He's a very independent-minded guy. He will do what he wants to do. Uh, I just think, again, uh, I think Cornell or anybody else can play an important role now about raising uh, issues that are not always discussed. But at the end of the day, I think the progressive community in general and the American people yeah. have got to make a decision as to whether we stand for democracy or authoritarianism or whether or not we're going to yeah. represent working class families. One, and, one of your yeah. chief political I, advisors yeah, is concerned that Cornell West is being taken advantage of by maybe people that simply want his name on the ballot. Do you have those concerns? I, I really haven't followed it that closely. All right, Bernie Sanders, uh, the independent senator from Vermont, who we saw in New Hampshire yesterday. Thanks for coming on and sharing your views with us. Good to see you. Thank you. When we come back, the Republican presidential hopefuls tried to make the case for why they are the best alternative to Donald Trump. But the Republican voters believe one an alternative. Analyst next. Welcome back. Panel is here. Former Democratic Congressman Stephanie Murphy of Florida. Marcos Melissa. Well, let me start with the visual that I think uh, will live uh, for quite some time, and that is the show of hands. If former President Trump is convicted in a... Hi there. Yeah. This is NBC News. In a court of law, would you still support him as your party's choice? Please raise your hand if you would. Danny Plutka, 
it was a moment, especially people like Cascade and Bay, sort of like the most enthusiastic was the event. That's not surprising. And everybody else, it was this I do see it slightly differently because they all went onto that stage having made a pledge that they would support the party's nominee. Right? So Never they, did they say are, that they had to support a convicted felon in that pledge. The party's nominee, there's no asterisk right. there that says he can't have a mugshot, right? So I, I feel for them in the sense that they, they were sort of like, none of them wanted to raise their hand except Vivek, right? None of them wanted to, but I think they all felt like they had to. How, how did Vivek end up the center of attention? Because I, I don't understand that game theory because leaving DeSantis alone seemed to be, you know, you're, everybody else uh, truly trying to actually get to Trump. You have to go through DeSantis. I'm a big Eagles fan, and their famous song, The New Kid in Town, yeah. it applies in politics, too. And he's the new kid in town, and he wants to get as much attention as possible. And he'll say and do anything to get the, that attention. And he fulfilled that objective. But he also had some previous new kids in town who now have some maturity, some political maturity, like Chris Christie, uh, Pence, and also Nikki Haley. And they went, we're not going to put up with this. And that was, a, that was a tough debate decision, because the more they jump on him, the more attention he gets. But... They drew him out. I mean, he, he's almost from a foreign policy perspective. He's the uh, Neville Chamberlain. He's not Ronald Reagan. Well, but did they drew him out, or were they really trying to attack him? He, he, he's Trump? asking for revolution. <laughs> no, no, no. Was this the other candidates? Because the, 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 the equivalent of punching or couch cushion, you can't attack Donald Trump, so they're going to attack Biden. I don't know, that's an interesting theory. I actually hadn't thought about that. Uh, I, I, I don't think most of them wanted to attack him. I think he just got on their nerves. He was so freaking obnoxious. He was a little chihuahua biting at their ankles, and he finally couldn't take it anymore. Who, does, who is this? I mean, can you imagine somebody who admitted he hadn't even thought about foreign policy until six months ago mansplaining to Nikki Haley, who was the U.N. ambassador, about foreign policy? I mean, they, they just couldn't help themselves. That's, that's what I think. Stephanie, what did you say? You know, I think that he embodied exactly what uh, the Harvard University calls him the section guy. Josh Barrow wrote about this. He's the guy who speaks in class incessantly but doesn't say anything of merit or of substance. And everybody can't stand him, but they kind of have to still be on his good side because one day he's going to be running for public office. And here he is running for president. Danny, what does it say that he's this guy successfully hacked his way into the center stage of the party this easily? Just that the information ecosystem just sort of olayed him to center stage. I think that is exactly the right question to ask. And look, I have a, I have a Vivek-style answer, a glib answer for you. Um, <laughs> look, everything has become like reality TV. This is how we ended up with the guy who kept saying, you're fired, and everybody was like, so oh, he's my God. he's a Kardashian. God. Exactly. <laughs> he, he's, he, and and he spe there's no accountability in politics, right? He can say whatever he wants. And if he said something different the day before... No one cares because he's there and he believes He's entertaining it, you in the moment. And he's entertaining you exactly he's, in the he's, moment. He's, he right. everyone. But, you know, some, some voters did want to see some, some toughness. Look what happened. To, you know, a lot of times candidates want to tell us, oh, nobody asks us about Trump on the trail. Here's Tim Scott on the trail being asked by a Republican about Donald Trump. Watch this. Side hustles suck, and you don't even love it anyway, okay? There, I said it for you. Now, if you're the one out of 100 people that truly love their side hustle, you could just skip this ad. But if you're truly just doing it for the extra money, can I ask you a question? 
Is it really worth it? Because look, let's face it, you don't have the desire, time, or energy to become an expert in e-commerce, affiliate marketing, day trading, or any of the other time-sucking opportunities that are out there that people can utilize to hit their financial goals, right? I have good news though, okay? What if it was possible to cash flow like you were sitting on a few mil right now? What if it only took a tiny portion of what a typical retirement balance would need to look like for you to cash flow your entire lifestyle right now? Right? I'm talking about the ability to retire young. And I mean, let's face it, okay, making it big with any kind of side hustle, it takes a lot of work. And that's because these opportunities aren't investments, no. And what they are are practically a full-time gig, right? Or at least a part-time second job. And look, here's the truth, okay? No investment is truly passive, but the best ones are as passive as possible. Okay, now for some good news. You've likely heard of AI. I mean, I think at this point, everybody's talking about it and the opportunity behind it. But have you heard about smart contract cash flow? You probably didn't, right? And it's true. Almost nobody realizes that smart contracts are one of the most semi-passive, lucrative cash flow opportunities that are exploitable to the max right now. And I think one of the best parts about this is that smart contracts have created such a lucrative opportunity for everyday regular people to capitalize on it right now before all the big and slower fish figure it out. And the name of it is kind of funny because even though it's called a smart contract, you actually don't have to be any kind of a techie or any kind of a genius for that matter to benefit from it. In fact, there are only two things that you need for this to be worth it for you right now. The first is the ability to use the internet, right? So I'd say check done on that one. Now the second thing is about 10K working capital, right? For you to put this to work. So that is kind of the one. also knew he didn't want to irritate the Trump base. And that's, listen, I'm an example of that. I had a 30-point lead at one time in a U.S. Senate race, and the minute Trump went against me, I dropped. That's the power of Donald Trump. And you, the interview you did earlier with the new kid in town, he, he's talking about a revolution. While in the same interview, he also said he's going to change the tone. I mean, that's within 48 hours. Stephanie, you... you, you represented the swing, one of the swingiest districts. Well, you know, one, I think that was like a, a mistake. I mean, you never engage with your voters that way on camera no. or not. I mean, that's just like a rookie mistake in, in engaging with voters. But in a, a swing district, you know, I think they are really wondering why we're faced with these two options. Like, and this debate was sort of separate from what the presumptive uh, nominations are going to be for both parties. Um, and, you know, we're a country of 300 million people, and we don't have better alternatives. I want to bring up one other thing about our Iowa poll that was stunning, because I think it tells us the way the Republican Party has changed. Let me show you what the makeup of the Iowa caucus, the Republican uh, caucus electorate was in 2016. It was 50-50, slight advantage male, 52%, 48%. According to our poll that we released this week, the likely uh, 
Republican electorate is now 61% male, 39% female. Um, this is the Trump effect. Whatever we want to talk about it, this appears to be the Trump effect as about it. Well, that more men are turning out, but I think it's interesting that I, you, you don't have any breakdown there, so I don't know no, what the race will make up. I don't know no, what the it's the same. This is Iowa. It's all the same except for gender. Everything else is the same on ideology and college education. It is, we are seeing more men identify as Republicans. Well, that's something that the Republican Party needs to deal with, because there are a lot of women in this country. <laughs> and we just had the summer of Barbie and Taylor Swift um, tour. I mean, women are having a moment in this country where they have an economic impact. They are having a voice, and they are they're going to want to go to the polls and, and reflect that. But I thought that's why I thought Nikki Haley did a good Absolutely. job in presenting that face. She potentially has room to grow if she can somehow get women to show up. So yeah. there's a lot of, you know, everybody's afraid of going after Trump, right? But if you look at primary polling, Trump's around 50, 52 percent. Half of the party isn't aboard. Now, if there's 10 right. people splitting the rest of the vote, that's a problem. But if you can consolidate. Well, you have... Uh, allowed me to uh, tease really well to our data download. When we come back, there is a divide in the Republican Party among voters who believe President Biden was legitimately elected and those who still believe Donald Trump's lied. We're going to show you what we learned from that split inside the Republican electorate in Iowa. Data download is next. Russia, with the help of China, is coming for us. And it's not a conventional method like war, nuclear, or chemical attacks, or even another one of those silly things that will make us wear masks again, but instead a silent attack on our electrical power grid. According to war hero, White House insider, and Purple Heart recipient Teddy Daniels, this attack is a new kind of war for them. It's data download time. There are a lot of ways to try to understand the 2024 Republican primary electorate, but we got some new data that suggests one of the more crucial splits, maybe between those Republicans who believe Donald Trump won the 2020 election and those who don't believe and actually acknowledge that the former president lost. Let me show you here. It's almost a pretty even split. Barely a majority believe Donald Trump's false assertions. 41% of Iowa Republican caucus voters do not believe Donald Trump's claims. And you know what? It leads to some interesting splits. Your favorability of Donald Trump depends on whether you believe him. Those that believe him, 92% favorable rating. Those that don't believe him, just 30% have a favorable rating here. As you can see, DeSantis, Scott, and Ramaswamy all have more evenly divided favorable ratings among both groups. In theory, they might be able to unify the two groups. Donald Trump, not so much, shows you a potential way to build a coalition. Look at the divide between these two groups. Again, 51-41 here. Gun enthusiasts, much more likely to be a gun enthusiast if you're in the believe category. 43% not believe. Religious affiliation, more devoutly religious, those that believe Donald Trump's lies. You're more likely to be moderate if you don't believe Donald Trump's lies about the election. And as you can see here, the biggest divide among these those that believe and don't believe, your college education status. Nearly 60% have a bachelor's degree among those that do not believe Trump's false assertions. And it also leads to some interesting splits on some key issues. Use of military... Uh-huh. And are also
also leads to some interesting splits on some key issues. Use of military at the border, gender affirmative care ban for minors, as you can see here, significant divides. But among the most significant might be the idea of more aid for Ukraine. Just a quarter of those that believe Trump's lies support more aid for Ukraine. Over half who do not believe Trump's lies support more aid for Ukraine. So as you follow this primary season, keep track of those that believe the election uh, election lies of Donald Trump and those that don't inside the Monday will mark the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington, where nearly a quarter million Americans gathered on the National Mall to fight for civil rights. Some know the event best as the day Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his I Have a Dream speech, where he brought attention to race relations, police brutality, and voting rights. Many of the same issues. Three days ahead of the march, Dr. King responded to some of his critics right here on Meet the Press. I'm sure 